Hello and welcome to this February episode of The Crit. In exciting developments, we are recording in the heart of Storm Eunice, which is affecting the UK. So please excuse any sound of blowing in the background. (laughs) Sorry, I've just realised that sounds quite naughty. As if faced with the apocalypse, all the UK has just decided to kick back (laughs) and enjoy. India, how are things looking at your end? Well, I've battened down the hatches, but um, this is kind of uh, tickling my long-held childhood dream of being a storm chaser. I feel like we're uh, reporting right from the centre of um, a scene from Twister. Oh, very dramatic. What, so you sort of dreamt of jumping in the van and heading off after the tornado or the cyclone or whatever they're called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know where they have the little sensors that you kind of like ditch out into the um into the center of the tornado. I was a rabid subscriber of National Geographic and it was my dearly held wish to to move to I guess like fly over country in America and and chase storms. I I thought this was a legitimate occupation up there with um tomb raiding. Uh, which was my other, my backup option was becoming a modern Lara Croft. The dreams of youth, eh? And and here and here we are, instead podcasting about design in in many ways, a, a safer profession, but it, it perhaps lacks some of the thrill, some of the uh, the sort of raw intensity of cracking open that tomb and finding a T Rex or whatever it was she used to find in there. We're actually going to discuss quite a lot of modern occupations in this week's episode. We've got Amazon Mechanical Turks. We've got Kimchi Squisher. We've got Kimchi's uh, Kimchi's old though. Kimchi's not super modern. No, that's true. It's a modern twist on kimchi making, isn't it? That's an ancient, an ancient, an ancient, an ancient profession. Well, let's stop teasing the audience with all this talk of exciting modern professions and leap into them. So the first story I wanted to talk about this week is quite a big one, but quite a technical one, so bear with me. This is news of potentially quite dramatic changes to the way in which the internet operates, with Google seeking to improve privacy and prevent people being tracked online by advertisers. Now, India, how familiar are you with cookies? I'm familiar in that I feel like my everyday experience online is giving the cookies permission to take up residence in my browser. I find the manner in which web pages ask me to install their cookies ranges from the fairly standard and boring to the irritatingly ingratiating. It's kind of one of those multiple hurdles that you have to jump through to get to any sort of web page where you're just kind of clicking accept all, which I know I probably shouldn't admit, but... I just want to get to that sweet, sweet content. (laughs) Don't we all? Well, for anyone who doesn't know, cookies are basically the memory of the web. And there's two main types. There are first party cookies. And on the whole, they're quite useful. They sort of remember what you've done on a website. Maybe if you've watched a particular video, just so you're not coming to it fresh every single time. So maybe sometimes a bit annoying, but generally relatively helpful. The other type are the troublesome one. These are third party cookies. And they're a way of sharing data between companies so that different companies and brands can track people across the web 
and ensure that their ads are being delivered to relevant users. So this is how you get those personalised ads turning up where you suddenly go, I'm being I'm being advertised maternity clothes and all I did was tell a friend once that their baby was cute. So it, it's in that kind of area. So the changes that Google has is bringing in across its Android operating system and also its Chrome web browser, and those are the two main ways in which people are accessing the web, is to try and stop those third-party cookies and get rid of them. But to be clear, they're still planning to pass some data along to advertisers because this is Google's whole model, isn't it? (laughs) This is the way that they make money. They're not going to suddenly turn off that spout as it were that's exactly right google aren't necessarily the heroes of this story they definitely want to carry on trading in your data and making their money off that the difference is what exact data they're giving so they're planning to get rid of those cookies and initially they had wanted to replace that with something called flock or the federating <laughs> the federated learning of cohorts which sounds like an old medieval guild or something it's very very strange And that was going to be a way to give advertisers a means of targeting their ads without exposing details on individual users. So the way it was going to do that was it would group people with similar interests together. So rather than super personalised data, you'd maybe be labelled as um, a sports fan or a retired traveller is one of the instances also going. Now, that plan was announced a while ago, but it got a lot of pushback. So what Google have announced now is a new way of doing it. They're getting rid of rid of the esteemed federated uh, cohort of bleh, guildy thing. And instead, they're bringing in a scheme called Topics. Now, the way in which Topics is going to work is it's going to pinpoint five of your interests, like fitness, transport, travel... And that will be based on what you've been looking at online in the last three weeks. And then when you visit a website, Topics is going to show that site and any of its advertising partners three of your topics. So it would say the person visiting your site, they love sport or they're very into travel or you could sell them some makeup if you if, if you fancy. I'm such a cynic about this because... I don't ever see it as companies like Google kind of sitting there on the other side of the screen stalking me personally. I know that my data as a consumer is only useful if you're combining it with hundreds upon thousands of other consumers. And I I don't think the algorithms are as sophisticated as we give them credit for because I know that if I kind of tinker with my algorithm by watching, say, a lot of Taylor Swift videos... I know that I'm going to get a lot of adverts for pregnancy tests because they're putting me in a fertile 20-something woman bracket. So I, I don't see how shifting from your categories to your topics is really going to preserve your privacy, but I guess people will feel better about it that they because it's the third party thing that's freaking people out. It's not that you're just being tracked on your computer. It's the idea that your data is being mined and then traded as currency between advertisers. Exactly. I think that's what a lot of the issue is that the web sort of by design at the moment is set up such that it's wherever you go 
companies are gathering huge amounts of personal data, which they can then trade in. I think that's the concern for at least for privacy campaigners. But Google aren't the first people to try and do something to tackle this. So, India, I think you looked into a precedent which perhaps has been motivating our old friend Google. Google would vehemently deny this, and in fact has vehemently denied it in the press. They're saying that this is part of a long-term rollout. They're definitely not influenced by any of their tech rivals. However, earlier this year, Apple bought out its own privacy measures, um, which has had some interesting ripple effects in the industry. And I think this speaks to another kind of overlapping topic that a lot of these companies are reliant on each other for a certain amount of services. So Google will be doing this changeover for Google's sake, um, but there will be a lot of other uh, companies and businesses and organisations that will be affected by this. Likewise, when Apple changed its privacy settings on its phone... You had to opt in, right? You had to say you gave permission for for advertisers to track you across apps. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of a consent form, um, which obviously it's putting a barrier in there and it's making people aware that they could be tracked. Now that Apple is asking you for permission, um, Meta, the artist formerly known as Facebook, has seen its stock prices just plunge at the beginning of this month. I think they've said it will cost them $10 billion dollars right this year they have said that poor mark i would like to call into question how mark build his digital world now it's going to cost them 10 billion how Uh, uh, where are these advertisers going to go if if the whole of apple if anything that you access on an apple device is asking you permission where is this 10 billion pounds of ad revenue going to go I could understand if they were scaring off advertisers and then the advertisers could go somewhere else. But maybe it will go back into print media, which, given that we produced the Semi the Quarterly <laughs> Journal of Design, would actually be great. I mean, if anyone wants to give us 10 billion for the next issue, that, that would be fabulous. And I, I do think we remain an attractive proposition for companies looking to connect authentically with audiences. <laughs> I think one of the things it flags up really clearly are the financial models which exist behind some of these things. So it's easier for Apple to make some of these changes because Apple isn't in the advertising business. It makes a lot of its money through hardware. So Apple has been able to make this big statement of itself as the friend of privacy and a tech giant that cares about your privacy and wants to keep it. That's much more difficult for Google or Facebook to do because their business is essentially built on selling online advertising space. And I think that's where some of these concerns have come around these new schemes that Google is trying to bring in. Because they have said they don't want to stop sharing personal data They can't. That's their business. What they want to do is change exactly what data is being shared. Now, this has had pushback on both sides because I think marketers are quite unhappy because they rely really heavily on cookies to target ads and measure the efficacy of what they're doing. Now, they're concerned that Google's proposal will massively prevent them from doing that and also strengthen Google's position because Google already has so much data and it's already the big player in this arena. If Google starts cutting off what 
competitors can learn from online, then that arguably puts them, gives them even more of a stranglehold. On the other hand, you have privacy campaigners who are saying they're still just sharing huge amounts of data. Okay, they're maybe twiddling around the edges and and doing a little bit to change the matters, but fundamentally, you you're not changing that basic business model of online tracking you and using your personal data to to sell advertising. Clearly, something needs to be done. But no one is entirely happy with what Google is putting forward. And I should say the timescale is pretty loose as well. I think they've given themselves two years in which to do this. And the proposals are not concrete yet. So they've said very little about how specifically they're going to make these changes. So our next big story is um, it's quite an unusual one for architecture. We've We've had an architect come out and put their hands up and say this project that we put our name to was a failure. So this is MVRDV and, you know, full disclosure, this is about the mound and we've spoken about the mound before and the mound has been done to death and we have no desire to talk about it any further. But this is kind of the the twist in the tale, as it were, because MVRDV was very silent, as most architects are when they have a project that is received in the press in a less than flattering way. They have um, taken to their own blog and published a riposte to every Fleet Street vulture that tore apart their project, um, with a very dramatic all-caps title, Learning from Marble Arch Mound, a premature opening and an execution lacking in love, brackets, our side of the story, close brackets. Quite strong beer from from the designers of that project. Basically unprecedented. It's just very unusual. So what have they said? What what are the reasons they've given as to why it was um, such a failure? What what have they come out with? So it's presented in quite an oral history style and it's very emotive. Um, (laughs) Like Beowulf. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's clearly a very biased account. They present it as they were doing this as, you know, a big favour to do with the pandemic. They call it a social endeavour, which, I mean, questionable whether it really had a kind of positive social impact, even at its conception. But they they took it on for the excruciatingly low commission price of £10,000. That's very low. It is really low for the amount of man. I lose that money all the time. It's nothing. It would be nothing to me, that sort of money. For paying a whole team for their work hours and design labour, I think, for a a multi-million pound project that it was in the end, that is a very that is a very low amount. I'm I'm sure you could have designed a better project for that. For for that chump change? No, I would... chew it up and spit it at Westminster City Council and say, come back when we're in the seven figures. They did get another 40k thrown at them by the next contractor that came along. That would be yeah, fine, yeah. yeah. So 50, 50k total. But they they kind of got cut out of the process once they had handed over the designs. They say that Westminster Council basically ghosted them. Because of the pandemic, they couldn't come over and check the progress for themselves, which I think is another 
very interesting situation that NVRDV isn't the only studio to have found themselves in that. You have to really trust your in-country team that's executing your vision. Even if it's, as, as you said, a, perhaps a slightly biased account that NVRDV have put forward, it's very interesting to have any architectural design studio speak about failure or to discuss that. In my experience, that is not something that is done in the industry. When we hear about a project, we get the press release version. We hear, it's so wonderful. Come and see this new amazing thing. We're so proud. And that, of course, is understandable. However, I did find one interesting uh, potential precursor for this, which was an exhibition that took place in 2013 called Accepted Rejected at Nuremberg's New Museum for Kunst and Design. And this was a show which was created by Stefan Curl, and it was within industrial design, not architecture, but it was an opportunity for designers to speak about some of their failures and to speak frankly about that and to say, we proposed this project and it didn't happen for whatever reason. And it was a really interesting show as a result of that because it felt much more honest. So a designer might put forward, um, Nitsan Cohen put forward a bracelet which he'd, he'd put forward and was really proud of the design, which just hadn't happened because it was technically difficult to manufacture. And it was an opportunity for him to speak about this relationship between the designer and the manufacturer and what can sometimes prevent something coming forward. And it was so rare, I thought, and so refreshing to hear people speak realistically about those challenges and to say, we wanted to do this, but, you know things get in the way and it just didn't happen. I mean, I'm still not sure that MVRDV, when they say learning, are actually presenting an honest account of ways in which a another studio could learn from this so much as they are clearing their name. They they kind of, their two, their two main points are that they should never have accepted such a low cost um, and they were far too charitable and that also they should have been less noble and pulled out earlier and taken their name off the project. And, you know, seeing it through to the bitter end for honour's sake was, uh, in hindsight, something that they wouldn't do again, which, I mean, yeah, if this is their learning going forward, that's fine. But I, I wouldn't say it's a kind of so much a learning document as a name clearing exercise. So something I wanted to bring up was an exhibition I actually managed to get down to see in person this month, and I thought it was a very good one. This is Portal Tables by the decorators down at Stanley Picker Gallery at Kingston University. Now, a lot of people won't know Stanley Picker Gallery, um, but they really ought to. It's a gallery which has done an awful lot to support more experimental forms of design practice, and they run residencies where a designer or an artist comes in, they produce sort of research around a topic and they run an exhibition at the end of it. It's quite far to the west of London, uh, Stanley Picker, so often people from the city's design scene don't make it out there, but whenever I've been it's been immensely rewarding, so I think I think it's worth the effort of an hour-long train trip or something. Now the show they were working on this time was quite nebulous because they started before the pandemic and it got delayed, obviously, as a result of that. So they had time to just produce a huge body of research. And they were kind of looking at two different themes. 
one of which is commensality. Now, Indy, do you know what commensality is? Because I didn't until I came to this show. It's a lovely, a lovely word. I feel like I will mangle the definition of it, but it's about living together in co-adaption. Right. Is that right? Pretty close, yeah. So it's that, but specifically in terms of eating. So it's kind of eating together. So they had that as one theme, because that's a big theme in all of the decorators' works. They do a lot of sort of community-focused design and understanding how people interact. And the other thing they were interested in was microbes. They kind of wanted to look, I think, more at situations in which humans coexist helpfully with microbes. And a really good example of that is fermentation. So what they ended up doing was producing three pieces of furniture, inflatable furniture, which is designed to support people getting together around that furniture and fermenting. So there's a big table for making kimchi, there's a little sort of stooly type thing to produce labna, the sort of yogurty dip, and also a sofa in which you can prove bread. I love this. I mean, anything inflatable furniture just like makes my 90s kid at heart really happy. Um, but also the idea of um, multi-use furniture. I love anything that has a kind of Swiss army knife feel that can do two things at once. And I mean, it's it's really clever as well. It's very neat and satisfying to have a table that you can eat at, but that you can also prepare the food at or somewhere where you can sit and be near something that you need to keep an eye on while you're making it. it with the sofa that proves bread, is the idea that your body heat keeps it at an ideal temperature? No, it's not so heavily engineered, I think, really. It's more, it's just had the bowls sort of built into it. So it's this kind of extraordinary inflatable landscape you can lounge on and then wear sort of like a like a Roman emperor. And where a Roman emperor might have some lovely grapes to sort of pop in his wee Romany mouth and gum up, they would have um, a little bowl in which you could make dough. So it's in quite like a, a direct way, just sort of stressing the sort of intermingling between humans and microbes. Now, one of the reasons I really liked it as a show is I think this is quite a hot topic in design at the moment, sort of this interspecies design. How can we design for other species and design for the environment and not just prioritise human wants and needs? It's a great topic, but I think often it can become quite vague and ambiguous when you hear designers sort of say, well, how could we design for ants? I always just think, oh, I, I just don't think ants want you designing for, for them. But what the decorators did really well is they grounded it very much in sort of cultural specificity. So they're looking at kimchi, which yes, includes microbes, but the reason they were looking at kimchi is very close to Stanley Picker Gallery is Europe's largest community of Korean expats. So they were doing something of like, here's a way in which microbes are actually really embedded within this community and it has a very specific cultural resonance. So they were able to tackle that sort of broader, very general, quite abstract theme, but just keep it grounded in something very understandable and, and very human. I also have an exhibition that I want to talk about, um, which is also on in London, if you're lucky enough to be there at the moment, at the Tate 
Britain. I didn't manage to get down there because I am not living in London currently and also the artist behind it was over on the west coast of America so we caught up over Zoom but actually that was very fitting for the theme of her work. Um, So this is an exhibition by the artist Danielle Dean who used to work in advertising, little callback to our Google conversation there. She has moved into art and is turning around and commenting on the kind of media production industry as a whole. So she's still very interested in advertising. And this piece is called Amazon Brackets Proxy, which is a very clever play on the two themes that she's exploring. So on the one hand, there is the Amazon of the rainforest in Brazil, where she was looking at Fordlandia. Um, Have you heard about Fordlandia, Ollie? I do know about Fordlandia. We actually covered it in Desenia many issues ago with a project Studio Swine did. It was a rubber town set up in the Amazon, right, by Henry Ford. And the idea was it was going to be the centrepiece of Ford's rubber production, but didn't quite work out that way. Mm, Yeah, he tried to impose his Fordist values of uh, people as production lines and the um, local Brazilians weren't having it. They didn't enjoy being forced to eat tin peaches and um, oatmeal. They didn't like being forced to work in the middle of the day when it was really hot. And uh, more importantly, the rubber trees really didn't like being planted in these kind of very regimented lines, you know, that might look very neat and organised to an industrial way of thinking but actually it's very bad for the plants and it allows kind of pest and blight to easily jump over. And then Danielle has uh, spliced this version of the Amazon with our modern uh, e-commerce behemoth as it were and she has been looking at and working with people who work for Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Now, do you do you know what the Mechanical Turk is in context of Amazon? I, I know what the historical Mechanical Turk was, right? So that was a sort of, it was pretended to be an amazing chess playing machine, but actually it was just a man hidden inside some, some set dressing. But I don't know what Amazon Mechanical Turk is. So what what's the deal? Ah, okay. So this is what um, Jeff Bezos calls artificial, artificial intelligence. So... Although there are a lot of um, loud noises about how sophisticated AI is, there are a lot of things that AI can't do that require a human mind and a human body to uh, kind of quickly visually process tasks. Um, So the AMT allows anyone to go up uh, onto the website, which is kind of like a open marketplace and you advertise for a hit which is a human intelligence task right and then lots of the little amazon mechanical turks will bid for those tasks you can pick as many as you want and they will do some kind of uh low-paid grinding labor so wait 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 so the mechanical turks are just people yeah so when he says artificial artificial intelligence that's just human intelligence. This is this is the two artificials cancelling each other out with like two negatives make a positive in maths. Yes, it's artificial as in fake, and then artificial as in man-made. So fake ma- fake man-made <laughs> intelligence. But it's very popular, and a lot of people have been making their living through this system. And there's multiple other ones. There's another one that's called Clickwork. 
um, which is basically, yeah, ways in which companies can outsource. So, you know, for example, a lot of what they're doing now is kind of this Ouroboros snake eating its own tail of people training up AI to do tasks that we'd like AI to do in the future. Oh, okay. You know, you might be teaching a uh, AI how to recognise a fire hydrant or something. So it's it's this very weird kind of strange world that a lot of people, um, especially during the pandemic, have also turned to, um, which is working remotely. Why Why do we need AI to be able to recognise fire hydrants? They're not taking over like the fire service, are they? No, I think this is just like training neural networks, but they are also training um, AI to recognise cancer, which is a little bit more kind of in the biotech sphere. Danielle has kind of cleverly brought these two worlds together um, in her installation, where she actually connected with some... Amazon Mechanical Turks through Turkopticon, which is this oh. kind of activist platform that has been bringing together these kind of quite isolated workers and allowing them to create lists where they review um, people who put out these hits, which makes them sound like assassins. It's just <laughs> such a strange little acronym. But, um, you know, people will put out a human intelligence task and then perhaps not pay people for you know, unscrupulous reasons. So this Turk Optican is trying to bring these people together. So uh, Danielle connected with Amazon Mechanical Turks who were up for participating in this art project. She paid them for their time. They had a a long-lasting relationship, which is quite interesting because these are meant to be kind of faceless transactions. But instead, she worked with them to create a kind of improv script where the contemporary Amazon Mechanical Turks tell the story of the of Fordlandia and the Amazon. And then the videos are shown on TV screens so you can see inside these people's lives. But then at the same time, there's this kind of lush backdrop of hand-painted foliage that um, Danielle has created. She's made these sculptures which are kind of hard drives and little data centers with plants bursting out of them as though uh kind of nature is taking back over and it also she's kind of exploring those issues that we were talking about with google this idea that um we are all kind of the data now whereas uh under ford it was trying to control the production of rubber and latex whereas today the uh this natural resource that's often being mined on the internet is human data. Mm, Silent Green is human. So it's sort of bringing together these two historical cases of mad old men seeking to rule the world and push through harebrained schemes, no matter the human cost. Mm, But she's got quite a... After speaking to her, I felt a lot more positive about it. She she believes that... um, humans will find a way to kind of collaborate again. Fordlandia fell partly due to worker rebellion and nature rebellion. And I think she thinks that there is hope for, you know, the Amazon unions. So one news item that caught my eye this month was the announcement of a new director for New York's Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. And quite a big appointment, really. The Cooper Hewitt is the US's 
main purely designed museum. Obviously, you have the Met and institutions like that, but the Cooper Hewitt is a significant institution, and they have announced that Maria Nicanor will be taking over imminently. Yeah, it's a position that's been vacant for a while, and uh, the previous director left under something of a cloud, so it's, it's <laughs> nice to see the position filled and filled by a woman. That's right. And we should come to that cloud because it is significant. It's two years that the Cooper Hewitt has been directorless. Um, but I, I think, first of all, it, it's important to to celebrate Maria and just say she seems a really good choice. I mean, quite a prestigious career. She was the inaugural director of the Norman Foster Foundation. She's worked for the design, architecture and digital department at the VMA with Guggenheim in New York and led the Rice Design Alliance at Rice University School of Architecture. So congratulations to her for the new posting and a couple of her early comments around it sound quite promising. So she told the New York Times that one of the major themes for her tenure is what that the museum will be looking at what it means to talk about design in the larger context. That means not just exhibiting beautiful cups of tea, but also explaining the infrastructure bill. I thought this was a really interesting quote, and I'm definitely here for, like, infrastructure bill chat. It's quite but a baffling what, quote. <laughs> what? Exhibiting beautiful cups of tea? I mean, maybe I'm just not au fait enough. Was there a, a cups of tea exhibition? Does she mean teacups as in kind of beautiful ceramics no that slightly threw me too and i think if it had just said beautiful cups you'd know exactly what she meant that we can't just show lovely pretty items we need to be sort of dealing with the political and social edges of design the of tea is bewildering um maybe there's maybe there was a famous liquids of the world exhibition or something which she's referencing but it went a little bit over my head but I, I thought the general sentiment was a good one and and sounds promising but as you say India there there was something of a cloud about over the previous director yeah and this is something I feel a little bit uneasy about because I think it's a really positive uh movement to see institutions finally appointing women to top jobs but then it also means that when when things go wrong it's uh it's one of those kind of things where it becomes an indictment on you know all women in top jobs so the previous head of the Cooper Hewitt was Caroline Bauman and she resigned after a investigation into I mean I think it was primarily how she held her wedding there was kind of some questions asked over her booking of some rooms and uh, what she paid for for a wedding dress. Um, it was all kind of in the New York Times and I'm not sure if there was an internal investigation or whether after it kind of made the news she resigned to save any sort of further embarrassment. I have the tea on this which is there was an internal investigation and it found that uh, Caroline Bauman had behaved inappropriately in her role, had used the role inappropriately uh, to gain personal favours. Now, that's something that she strongly disputes. She rejects that investigation and says it was coloured by sexism. The basic problem is she received a dress for her wedding from a Brooklyn-based designer, Samantha Sleeper, um, and the allegation was that uh, Caroline Bauman had received it at a reduced price 
you know, and the idea is using your influence as the head of a major design museum, designers might want to stay in with you. I should say Samantha Sleeper rejects that and says that Caroline Bauman paid the full cost of it. She also hosted the wedding at Longhouse Reserve in East Hampton. Um, again, I don't know whether that was for free or for a reduced cost, but that is run by a non-profit founded by Jack Lena Larson, who's a textile designer, uh, a friend of Mrs. Bauman, and um, he received an annual National Design Award in 2015 from the Cooper Hewitt, and his non-profit was also given a room for free at the Cooper Hewitt to hold meetings. So the concerns were that her personal life and work were intermingling in a way that felt uncomfortable. I should say she isn't the only person to take issue with this report. Some trustees of the museum were very unhappy as well. A, a position that seemed to emerge is that many people felt she had perhaps behaved a little unwisely and perhaps could have flagged these things up a little more carefully or sort of made sure to communicate them in a different way, but that she hadn't done anything they felt was objectionable. So it it's a slightly complicated issue. I think, as you say, when there are issues of sexism surrounding it, it's very unfortunate it focused around a wedding, because I do think that plays into some stereotypes and adds to that sense. Interesting that they've taken two years as well to fill the position. It suggests, I don't know, I suppose a sense of uh, taking a long time to, to find the right fit and get everyone on board, which hopefully means that she's going to go into a uh, a more kind of stable starting point. Like you say, India, I think when women lose these top jobs in uncontroversial circumstances we're not saying that they've necessarily behaved brilliantly and it's all a stitch up like we can't really comment on it but I think it does flag up how few of these top jobs are occupied by women you know that's the problem these examples leap out just because there aren't many women in these positions of responsibility and the industry as a whole we really need more Another uh, nice story about a project is um, the collaboration between CAKE, uh, that's C-A-K-E, all caps, um, with the Southern African Wildlife College and their new anti-poaching bikes. These are electric motorbikes, is that right? Yeah, so they are custom designed. They're very snazzy, actually, and I would uh, encourage everyone to go and look them up because they're very pretty to look at. But these are a range of... No, they are... They look fabulous while you combat poaching. They do look fabulous while you're whizzing around um, catching people being mean to animals. They are kind of very utilitarian looking, but they are a series of off-road bikes. So some of them are designed to support um, anti-poaching uh, groups out in kind of the bush. So... There's one that has like a big workbench on it. They are able to tow um, like significant weights behind them, even though they're only two wheelers. And then they have the patrol like bike. Like a rhinoceros to safety, dragging <laughs> it out of the range of fire. And then they have the patrol bikes, which the main point here is they're quiet. So, I mean, when I say sneak up, I don't think you're going to get super close to someone. I know that electric vehicles can sometimes be dangerously quiet on our roads and they often have to add a fake noise in. This is so that patrols can happen without 
scaring off the poachers from a distance because if you're driving a kind of traditional fuel bike that combustion engine is going to be making noise that can be heard from miles away oh so you signal your position straight away um and also cake has said that uh one of the problems is that getting fuel to these remote locations is tricky, that the Southern African Wildlife College were finding they were having to sometimes helicopter fuel in to run their bikes, which is obviously not very environmentally friendly. And the idea is is that these bikes could be hooked up to power sources, um, ideally powered by solar panels, so that you could have a kind of greener energy source and one that was more readily available than being reliant on a supply chain to get your fuel. So what's the kind of business model around it? Because I assume there can't be an enormous market for anti-poaching bikes. Will these be used anywhere else or anything like that? Well, so you can buy them. Um, okay. They are available. They are road legal, I believe. They say that I believe it's 3% of all of the profits from selling these bikes will go back to the Southern African Wildlife College. They also sell merch, so you can get t-shirts and uh, baseball caps to kind of show your support for the project. The bikes uh, look to be, I mean, all bikes are modular in some sense, but they also sell all of the particular parts that you'd need to keep your bike roadworthy and repaired. So I imagine that would be another kind of string to their financial model is that you buy a bike and then you're going to have to maintain it with their particular parts. But they do look very snazzy. I I would like to drive one around. They kind of look like, did you ever play with Meccano when you were a child? No, too technical. Uh, as, a, as a Duplo boy, Duplo Playmobil boy onto Lego and then I really didn't want to go further than Lego. Presumably, this is also good marketing and testing for cake, though, as well, because I'm imagining if a bike can stand up to the needs of um, park patrols in quite challenging conditions, you know, not great roads, potentially having to travel quite a long distance without opportunities to charge. You know, if, if your bike can deal with that, it's going to be able to deal with most other things that might get thrown at it in more regular commercial use. So I guess it's quite interesting that this kind of acts a little bit as a guarantee and presumably as well is a little bit of a testing process for them as, the, as they develop these bikes. Salut, one and all. I'm delighted to say that this episode of The Crit is brought to you in partnership with Maison et Objet, Paris's premier trade fair for design and interior architecture. This year, the fair will be held from the 24th to the 28th of March, slightly later than usual, in order to welcome all visitors safely and conveniently to the fair. The trade show is committed to keeping its visitors and exhibitors safe at all times, enforcing all necessary sanitary measures and communicating about them on all its channels to ensure a smooth process for all. You can order your tickets at www.maison-objet.com where you can also find all the health measures to ensure that the fair is COVID safe. So don't dawdle, Paris is famously beautiful in the springtime. Book your tickets for Maison et Objet now. Au revoir! So moving on to our products and projects section and starting off with quite an exclusive product. We're in the world of collectible design for those 
deep of pocket and deep of taste. And this week I went to see uh, Barbara and Osgaby's new show at Gallery Creo in London, which is called Signals. And it's really lovely. It's a collection of lighting. And the basic idea is that you have this very plain, simple, sort of colourful metal profile and extrusion. And then attached to that, you have these beautiful Vanini blown glass cones, which emerge, and those are the lampshades. So you have this really nice contrast between sort of the soft, artisanal, slightly organic glass. They sort of grow out almost like... Uh, lovely mushrooms from a tree and then this very industrial profile and I think it's quite successful actually I'm, I'm a fan India have you seen any of the pictures of this I have I'm looking at them now actually and oh, there's something about hand-blown glass that I really love I was such a I mean again this is just me revealing my childhood of nerdiness I was obsessed <laughs> with Murano glass animals as a child I also don't have uh I don't have hand-blown glass lighting money, but I think the um, your mushroom analogy is very apt. They do look like those lovely logs you can get with kind of organic mushrooms to grow and shave off. Yeah, I think it's really successful and quite an interesting one because my understanding is that they've had to do this while under the pandemic when you can't travel. And one of the interesting things about Murano glass, I suppose, is it's so variable. Like atmospheric conditions really matter. Like blowing on one day, the colour may be slightly different to another. So to have to do that remotely, I think was a real was a real challenge. But I think kudos to Jails could be in Edward Bar, but they've really pulled it off. It's a very satisfying collection and it's well worth a look if anyone is in the area of Cork Street to pop by Gallery Creo and see the results. So some news from the earbud wars. Sony has released um, its latest earbuds and I think they look pretty cool. I don't know if you've seen them. They're called the Sony Link Buds. I have, yeah, I have seen them. I think they're very attractive. Yeah, so the idea is is that they're kind of a little disc nodule that sits in your ear and then they come with kind of little almost like brackets at the side that kind of keep them nestled comfortably in your ear so instead of the kind of airpod style where you have a little stem hanging down that kind of counterbalances them they are entirely within your ear so very kind of like subtle i've heard that they're very comfortable they're easy to kind of run in walk in speak with but one thing that's really interesting about them is that um, unlike the previous Sony headphones launch they are not attempting to be noise cancelling they're designed for everyday wear but they are deliberately filter in noises from your surroundings as a kind of safety measure so that you can walk around town and still hear cars you can go into a coffee shop and have a conversation with the barista um, which I think is quite nice because I mean everyone wears headphones so much of the time now but it is uh you know kind of important that you are still able to stay safe and communicate with people so I think it's really nice that this is a feature it's realistic isn't it because I think it's quite rare for me to say sit down and think I'm really going to listen to I'm going to listen the heck out of this thing this is going to be my activity for the next hour Uh, unless you're listening to the crit of course in which case everyone is listening the heck out of us 
But it's quite rare, I think, to do that kind of concentrated listening. I think the way lots of people interact with audio now is, like you said, you have it on whilst you're walking around, whilst you're doing other things. So something which can kind of interface that sound with your surroundings, I think is quite helpful and and quite nice. Now, I know lots of other things do this, and it's there's often like a transparency mode, isn't there? But that's quite technical with a sort of built-in microphone that boosts your surroundings. But how, how are the link buds doing it? What's, what's the difference? So it's hard to describe, but basically the earbuds kind of look like a tiny donut or like a polo mint, if you know the mint with the hole. The polo, the, the mint the with the hole. Yeah, so the sound actually filters through the design. It's, it's not... I mean, it's quite elegant, as you said, this kind of complicated system where it filters through the noise from the outside whereas the whole idea is that instead of um, plugging up your ear and some people also find that quite uncomfortable I think this is the idea is that uh, other people might find it more comfortable not to have these kind of corks plugging up their ears essentially that they are kind of breathable as it were yeah i think i think they look really nice i'd be interested to try a pair i saw they're priced at 149 pounds which i mean is not bad but i do think is quite expensive for earphones which aren't necessarily like top of the line in terms of audio that that seems like quite a lot to have a just sort of basic everyday pair but I suppose it's cheaper than AirPods, maybe. But, you know, it's a considerable investment. So from something very high-tech, I'd like to look at more classical joinery. Uh, this is a new product launch from the British furniture brand Very Good and Proper, and they've created something called the Bureau Desk, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a wall-mounted desk made from oak ply and folded sheets of metals, and the idea is it can fold up against the wall when not in use. So when you're not on it, it looks like a lovely cabinet or someone I said, that's a lovely piece of wood you've stuck to your wall. That's very nice. What a feature. But then it folds down and you have a little workspace. So it's quite simple, but it's a very cute design. And it also struck me that, you know, with more people able to work from home and continuing to work from home as the result of the pandemic, I think you might see a little bit of a, a rush on this typology of what's a way you can have a decent workstation, but which is pretty discreet and which isn't going to take up a massive amount of floor space in your house and which isn't going to turn your living room into an office, say. Yeah, that's a nice thing because it's space saving, but then at the same time, it means that you don't have to be looking at your work desk all the time, which is nice. I would personally benefit from using one of these because it would mean that I couldn't let my desk become very cluttered. You're going to have to have a clean workspace if you're going to be folding up your desk all the time. Clean workspace, clean mind. Dirty workspace, dirty mind. And we're going to end this section today on a story that is, I think, a little bittersweet, but also has a real uplifting uh, note to it. So I think many listeners will be aware that in September 2021, very sadly, the excellent designer Pauline Del Tor died unexpectedly. Um, a really tragic loss to design. She'd accomplished so much in uh, in her career and I'm sure would have gone on to, to do a lot more. I think... Pauline returned to people's thoughts recently this month because a couple of her final products and projects have started coming out. 
So Hem, for instance, has launched a really lovely side table called Lolly. Um, it's a powder-coated carbon steel thing, and the tabletop is matched with the foot underneath and they're connected with a hollow leg. And the idea is you can slide the foot under a sofa to save space and you can feed cables down through that leg to keep things tidy. So it's just quite an elegant solution, quite cute. I think very sort of distinctive of Pauline's work, the kind of rigour, but with this character. But I, th I think the, the really moving story is... Obviously, when Pauline passed, there were projects still underway in the studio, um, things that hadn't been finished. And as a sort of nod to her legacy, her husband, the filmmaker Nicholas Thierry, has partnered with her colleague Claire Pondard and sort of other friends and colleagues to to finish some of those designs off and, and make sure they they hit the market, which is a is a really lovely tribute, I think. Yeah, it's really, as you said, bittersweet um, and moving to see, you know, this work that was left unfinished when she so tragically and suddenly passed away to be realised um, and in such a kind of tender and thoughtful way. Yeah, so we saw the first two examples of that launched uh, this month at Stockholm Design Week for the Swedish brand Affect. They're the Thelma screen divider and the Pauline chair. And I think they look really nice products and projects. It would be super interesting to know how they would have ended up had Pauline been able to finish them. But credit to everyone involved. I think they've done an excellent job. They look very nice and sort of really lovingly finished. And I meant to, I meant to give the last word to Pauline's husband, Nicholas, because I think it's it's really moving what he said, um, which is there were so many projects in the pipeline. I felt I had to do something. It was something we needed to do to complete the project because there was no way for me that her work would stop like this. Well, I think that's all we have time for this week. We have hatches to batten down with Storm Eunice uh, raining down around us and hope everyone is staying safe out there and... Uh, comfortable, warm and secure in their homes. Oh, sorry, a very big gust of wind has just has just wrapped up my window like the ghost in Wuthering Heights. And you can always wrap upon our window uh, metaphorically by getting in touch with us. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at at Desenio Journal and we are also available on email at thecrit at com. and we'd love to hear from you. The Crit is presented by me, India Block, and Ollie Stratford, and has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. Our theme music is composed by Yuri Suzuki with Team Suzuki at Pentagram. 